Well, good morning, saints. Good morning, sinners. I got a great announcement to bring you all up to speed on. We have a daycare coming in. Okay, half of you are happy, other half not so much. No, uh, we struck up an agreement, and so uh, we're in the process of renovating. Back there, you'll notice over the next little while that... um, uh, we'll be adding some washrooms and things will be changing a little bit. And uh, as soon as we can get it up and running, there will be a daycare running out of here, which we're really excited about. Secondly, Easter's coming, which is great. And every Easter we do an, an offering, and I'm going to give you a heads up this one. So far, what we're going to end up doing is uh, our designation for our Easter offering is going to go to the Ukraine. Let me tell you why. Uh, we have $3,000 designated for a rehab center going into, that's already been given, going into Kiev. And uh, their success with rehab there is over 90%. So uh, somebody felt in the community to, to donate and to give, and uh, that's already in the works. We also have another $20,000 that is going towards a church plant in Rivna, which is... Uh, uh, in western Ukraine. As a matter of fact, uh, the second weekend of May, I'll be going out there and have been actually invited to speak at this church plant opening. And uh, so right now we have $23,000 raised that we'll be taking over there. Um, this is what we'd like to do for our Easter Sunday offering. We would like to have all of that that comes in over and above your regular giving, a special uh, offering there. And ideally, our goal is to take 40 grand over. So I'm preparing you now. Think about it. It's all about missions. That's what we're doing with our offering this year. And uh, we're going to take it to the Ukraine. Your money goes incredibly far out there. And if we could have, help the church plants, if we could help the local pastors, if we could help the rehab centers, um, there's, you're going to hear a lot about what's going on in the Ukraine in the upcoming few months. Uh, it's actually our destination of choice for our internship program that will start this fall. And uh, we are taking some uh, young adult students with us uh, as well in the end of June, beginning of July. They're going to be going to an English camp, and uh, we'll have more details coming forward. So I want to plant that in your ears and in your hearts so that you can prepare where we're going this Easter. But before we go any further, let's pray. If you're our guest, glad that you're here. Just sit back, take it all in. My name's Jerry. I'm the lead pastor, and uh, we're doing a series on relationships, and I'll get a little bit further, but I just want us to center our hearts, our minds, and our spirits, and we can go from there. So, God, we have dragged all sorts of things through the doors this morning, and the fact is we acknowledge our stress, our anxiety, and, and for many of us, different weights that carry us down today, and so we ask you uh, now to remind us that, that you made the universe and not us. You sustain the world through your efforts, not our own. May we be reminded of the divine call to simply partner with you to help repair the world into the kind of world that you want it to be. And so, figuratively and literally, remove the weight off our backs that you've never asked us to carry in the first place. We bring our relational conflict, be it at work, our marriages, at home, our friends, our relatives, and even those enemies that you ask us to love. We invite you into our messy lives, and we ask you, God, that you would heal us in the situations we find ourselves in. And so as we take a deep breath, remind us that your spirit is breath. And that you are as close as an exhale and an inhale. Reveal yourself to us during this time. Touch our hearts, affect our lives. And may everything thought, everything spoken, and everything felt be blessed by you. So, we've been on a series called Relational Rehab, and it's about how to have healthy healing relationships. And I think we all want healthy relationships in our lives. We want them at home. We want them at school. We want them in our workplace. We want them in our neighborhood. And yes, we do want them in the church. Unfortunately, every area that I just mentioned is actually marked with conflict. Every area. People are messy. So what we did is we've looked on uh, starting this new series, basing it on the, the, the New Testament book of James. And he wrote to believers who were experiencing conflict. 
he wasn't addressing hypothetical situations. He was addressing real situations that already existed. Now, the thesis of his book, this letter at the very end of the New Testament, is uh, basically put your faith into action. Put your faith into action. And he tells us that what we do as believers with our faith matters both here and now, but also in eternity. So we need to put it into action. So over and over again, James addresses issues that have the potential not only to damage the church relationship at large, but all of our relationships. So the first week when we started this, we we talked about three keys to getting along with each other. Listen more, talk less, and Stay calm, not calm down. If, you calm, if somebody tells you to calm down, you haven't stayed calm. So you got to remember that. So listen more, talk less, stay calm. Then we address trying to control our tongue and to control our words uh, by letting the Holy Spirit control our thoughts and our, our conversations. And then we saw that, two, uh, that great relationships are based on wisdom and that there are two types of wisdom that James talks about. He talks about godly wisdom. He talks about demonic wisdom. And it placed us in a position where you and I had to do some self-examination to see where are we getting our wisdom from. James also listed seven qualities of godly wisdom that we can apply to all of our lives and We also understood that when you let God have his way inside you, different things are going to come out of you. When we let God have his way inside us, different things will come out of us. We are to be grace givers. And then last week we talked about the importance of humility. And I think that's one of the hardest things for us to do, especially if we've been hurt or hurt repeatedly. It's to show grace. It's to show mercy to maybe people that we don't feel deserve it. And at the core of how we relate to others is really the issue of how you and I, we see ourselves. Uh, We have to move past our pride and we have to find humility. And in humility, we have to refuse to judge the hearts of others. And that's hard for us. So today we're going to conclude at how to have relationships that heal. And the deepest level of any relationship really is total vulnerability. That's something we don't like. And at that level of total vulnerability, we are open and we are honest. We are, at that point in the church, we're actually able to confess our sins to each other and speaking and praying healing words over each other. And so if you want the deepest place that relationships can go, it's the level of praying and confessing and trusting God together. Very tough. Very tough. In the verses preceding my text today, James gives two negative commands regarding the use of the tongue. He basically tells his people, he says, listen, you shouldn't be grumbling and don't take oaths. In other words, let your yes be yes and your no be no. And and, and he addresses that and then he turns in the letter to more positive, the positive use of the tongue. And it's found in the context, ironically, of hardship. See, in normal relationships, we tend to minimize our struggles. When somebody asks, how are you doing? What do we usually respond? Fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm just fine. Even though our bottom could be falling out, we're always just fine. Right? And uh, so what do we do? We keep our distance. When we, uh, and to add about that, we only talk about the stuff that's easy, that's, that's believable. You know, we don't want to let really people know what's going on in our lives. But we're here today And I believe we gather together because we crave something more than just normal. All of us do. And in order to have spiritually deep, healthy, healing relationships, first you and I have to trust God enough to pray. James writes, is anybody in trouble? Let him pray. I want to give you a disclaimer. I don't claim to be an expert in prayer or the practice of prayer. I have to be honest with you, it's a constant struggle for me. Uh, I don't ever want to convey that I've arrived. But I want us all, wherever we're at today, to join together in this pilgrimage of becoming a God-focused, God-dependent community of praying believers. See, when adversity comes our way, we need the 
divine wisdom that James talked about in chapter 3. And what we're supposed to do is we're supposed to go to pray, pray to God, knowing that he will give it to us, that wisdom that is, and he's not going to reprimand us. If we're asking for wisdom, he's going to be there for us. And so adversity should actually draw us towards God, and prayer should be our first response when we find ourselves in trouble. Now, prayer is the obvious theme through the verses of uh, 13 to 18, and that word occurs actually in every verse. And then now with the mention of trouble or suffering, James brings us full circle back to chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, where he opened the book with the radical command, uh, command, consider it all pure joy when we encounter troubles of various kinds. The only way that we can do this is to view every difficulty, every difficulty that you and I have through a Godward perspective and to depend on God through prayer. Now think about that. That's, that's bringing God an awful lot into our lives. And we have to do this first on an individual level, of course. It's, it's between God and I. This is my individual relationship. And uh, we have to mentally process everything that happens to us from the trivial to the significant. We tend to think that God doesn't care about the trivial, but Scripture tells us he does. And, and again, this is James' point in, in verse 13. But then in verses 14 to 16, it takes on a strong community focus. We're not on this individual, isolated spiritual journey. That's not what our faith is all about. We only, you know, uh, where we only cross paths here and there. Rather, the fact is, you and I, we are pilgrims together with the other saints. We're in this together, and that's what James is saying here as he's writing this letter. All of life should be lived with a God-word, God-dependent focus, shared together with God's people. We're all in it together. Now, the Greek word that he has there for trouble or afflicted refers to any difficulty. And so we remember that James's readers are suffering. They're being persecuted. And the word here refers to all types of problems that they encountered in life. So whether it's spiritual, whether it's physical, whether it's emotional, whether it's financial, whether it's relational. And you know, as we've seen, becoming a Christian doesn't provide you an exemption from any trials. If you're going to go through trials of any sort, James answers like a rifle shot to the bullseye. He says, pray. If you're going through trials, pray. And it's easy for us to actually sit back and nod in agreement, preach it, pastor, you got it, yeah. But the question is, when you encounter difficulties, is prayer your first response? It's not the automatic response, is it? No. Let's be honest. The natural response to any kind of trouble, any type of affliction for us is to what? To grumble and complain. It is. Think about it. We throw a pity party. You see that all the time. Or we question God, right? You know, why is this happening to me? And what does James say? If you're in trouble, you pray. Now, when you get into a conflict with your wife or kids, that means we need to learn how to shoot up a prayer for wisdom and for a calm spirit, do you not? When, you know, do you pray that you'll be an example of godliness to your family, moms and dads, grandparents, aunts, uncles, cousins? Do you ask God to check your anger? Ouch, especially when you drive. Do you pray that each of your family members will grow in Christ through difficulties that they may find themselves? When you face a problem at work, do you silently send up what I would call a Nehemiah prayer? If you go back into the Old Testament, there's this guy named Nehemiah. And he was talking to an unbelieving king about his request to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the walls. And uh, in between the king's asking him what he wanted and his response, Nehemiah says very quickly, so I prayed to the God of heaven. In other words, it, it couldn't have been more of a, help Lord, I need you here. But it shows that Nehemiah has a knee-jerk response when he's in trouble or when he needs wisdom, when he needs to move in the area of work that he began to pray. And I can go on, but you think about it. When your car needs repair, do you pray for the mechanic to do good work? Well, that's stupid, really. Do you want another bill? 
No, you want your mechanic to do a good job. When you need medical care, do you pray that the doctor has wisdom? Well, no, I actually hope he failed medical school and he's going to look after me, right? When you make a major purchase or you're faced with financial problems, do you pray for wisdom to be a good steward of the resources that God has entrusted to you? When you gather with your family members who are not believers for the holidays, do you pray for opportunities to talk about Jesus and faith? See, in every situation of life, God allows problems. That's going to mess with some of your theology. So that we can learn to depend on him in prayer. You know, we often pray as a last resort. You know, after we've literally done everything that we can to try to fix the problem, right? I can fix this, I can fix this. So we plan, we work hard, and then maybe we remember to pray. You know, God bless my efforts, I've done all of this. Well, you can do more than pray after you prayed, but you shouldn't do anything until you pray. And prayer acknowledges, when we get to that point in our lives, prayer acknowledges that we need to be totally dependent on God. It admits that I can't even draw my next breath without God's help. And sometimes I don't think in our culture that we're there. Yes, we have this faith. Yes, we talk about prayer. But are we in this understanding that we should be inviting God literally into every aspect of our life? And so when we encounter trouble, you know, what do we pray? Now, don't answer that too quickly. You know, because we often assume that when we encounter trouble that we should be praying, Lord, you know, get me out of here right now. Get me out of this trouble. You know, sometimes... You know, when I'm asked to visit someone or, or pray with someone, you know, usually somebody in the room will say, well, you know, will you p- please pray for so-and-so, to which I kid you not. Sometimes I'll look at them and i go, what should I pray? You know, at which they look at me like, I'm not all there. You know, why are you here? Aren't you the pastor? Well, pray for healing, of course, pastor. Well, here, maybe God has another purpose for this trial. You know, is, is that person actually living under the lordship of Christ? Maybe the illness or whatever the reason is, as I'm there, to, is to bring that person an, an awareness and a submission to God. Is that, is that ever possible? Is there some other purpose as to why a person is in the state that they are? When trials and afflictions come. So when you encounter someone you love and they, they encounter a trial, what do, should we do? Well, I think we need to pray for wisdom. You know, again, that goes back to James chapter 1. You know, we pray for the ability to endure with joy. We pray for a godly attitude through the pain. Prayer that, that the works of God may be displayed in the trial. Pray that God would use the crisis for his purpose and his glory. Pray that the fruit of the Spirit would grow in the lives of everybody that's involved in the situation. See, suffering, because it does come into our lives, it should drive us to prayer. It should. And then James, right away, he goes to the other extreme. If anybody is happy, let them sing songs of praise. If one's in good spirits, then they should sing praises. And again, here, James shoots a one-word answer. You happy? We'll sing. That's why we come together, to sing praise, to edify God, to encourage those around us. Earlier, James says, every good and perfect gift comes from uh, the Father above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights. And this being the case, praise What we do when we sing, sometimes we do it vocally, sometimes we do it with or without music, is the appropriate response. We should be doing that. Here James sees our praise as being expressed in song. And it's seen throughout the book of Psalms when you read it. In fact, Psalms has this pattern for a response to adversity and for favor and for blessing. We have psalms of lament, we have psalms of petition, but we also have psalms of praise. And it's evident that James, as he's writing this letter, he sees music as contributing greatly to our communication with God. Music engages and expresses what's in the soul. And, you know, again, well, where else do we come together once a week and gather and sing out loud other than usually a church or the uh, occasional rock concert? You may think that singing when things are going well is easier than the command to pray when you're suffering, but actually it's not. See, our natural response 
is to forget God when things go well. That's why Moses had to warn the Jewish people about when they were about to enter into the promised land. He said, when the Lord your God brings you to the land, he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give to you a land with large, flourishing cities that you did not build, houses filled with all kinds of good things you did not provide, wells that you did not dig, vineyards, olive groves that you did not plant. Then when you eat and are satisfied, he says, be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. The same reason David talks to himself in Psalms 103. He says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits. And then for the same reason, the church is exhorted to remember the Lord's death through frequent observance of the Lord's Supper. Remember, remember, remember. And so the natural response when life is going well is actually to forget the Lord and all of his benefits. And so James says, look at when things are going well, when you're in a good mood, when your soul is satisfied, sing praises. Recognize that God has brought you into this place. So when we're hurting, prayer acknowledges God's sufficiency over all of our needs. When we're good, praise acknowledges God's sovereignty over all of our circumstances. And these two extremes shows us that God doesn't expect us always to be bouncy, cheerful, and upbeat, happy, shiny people. You know, James allows that sometimes you're going to be down because of suffering, but his directive is clear. It's look at pray. And when you're cheerful, sing. And then he writes, is any of you sick? You should call on the elders of the church to come and pray over you, anointing you with oil in the name of the Lord. Such a prayer offered in faith will heal the sick, and the Lord will make you well. And if you have committed any sins, you'll be forgiven. So secondly, in order to have relationships that heal, we need to depend on others to pray for us. The Chicago Sun-Times printed a story that was actually first published by the American Heart Association. It's regarding a study at a San Francisco General Hospital that revealed the victims of heart attack, heart failure, and other cardiac problems. Uh, It it revealed that those who were prayed for actually fared better than those who were not. And so the cardiologist, his name was Randy Bird, he assigned 192 patients to the prayed-for group and then 201 patients to the non-prayed-for group, Okay. Medical science doing this, okay? All patients were in the coronary intensive care units. The patients, the doctors, the nurses did not know which group of patients were in which group. You tracking with me in this? So prayer group members were scattered around the nation. The prayer group members around the nation were given only the first names of people. They were given their diagnosis and they were given the prognosis of the patients. That's all they had. And they prayed. They prayed for them. The researchers said that the results when they came back were incredibly dramatic. The group that was prayed for had fewer complications than the non-prayed-for group. Fewer members of the prayed-for group died. The non-prayed-for group was five times more likely to develop infections requiring antibiotics and three times more likely to develop a lung condition leading to heart failure. Uh... Which group do you want to be in? (laughs) You know, James is clear that our God word, God-dependent focus should be shared with God's people. We're in this together. This God word focus does not mean that we are to suffer in isolation. Verse 13 shows that we have to walk uh, with God on the private. I get that. On that private individual level. The battle with the trials, they have to start here. They start inside of us. But beyond that, God has made us members of Christ's body. If we don't share our needs, if we don't share our struggles with others, they cannot help bear our burdens as commanded in Scripture. And they can't rejoice when God answers prayer if they just don't know. A few commentators argue that these verses are not talking about physically Uh, physical healing at all, which is mind-blowing for me. Rather, they argue, when you read this and study, that sick should be translated weak, weary, worn out, beaten down. And all James is referring to is just spiritual weakness. And they also look at this passage of Scripture, and they see that James uses a word there called anoint, and that refers to a ceremonial anointing, kind of like an everyday practice of refreshment, you know, putting something on, making yourself smell pretty. 
And so the idea then that some commentators will say is that a person who is spiritually weak should call the elders and they will anoint him, uh, make him fresh, um, pray with him, and the Lord will then restore the one who is weary and raise them up. And now they interpret this as spiritual restoration, not physical healing. I have to say that because that's actually a thought in some churches today. However, almost all Major commentators, understand this text when you read it as it is to refer to physical healing and not spiritual restoration. Which now says, where do you stand on physical healing? So, the Greek word here for sick always denotes some sort of bodily illness throughout the New Testament. The verb there for anointing is, is, is used of common anointing, but it's also used when the disciples anointed the sick in, in their healing ministry, as we read earlier in the New Testament. But that leaves us with a very difficult problem, namely that when you read this text as it is, it seems to guarantee healing for those who follow the procedure. Right? You see that lineal thought. So before I address that, I, I want to warn you now that I don't have an easy answer. But let me make some very clear observations of the text. First, notice that, it's a six, that it is the sick person who is to call the elders, not vice versa. Now, the elders are pastors or people within the church community designated and recognized uh, as elders within a church community. That doesn't mean that only pastors actually can carry out the ministry of prayer, ministry of healing, but it's also those who are designated within the church that represent the church. Also, let me point out that the elders are not omniscient. Don't expect that we sh- should know when somebody needs prayer. Tell us. Usually we're the last people to know. Oh, I didn't want to bug you because you're busy. It's our job. We're not busy. You know, it, it, all, these verses also intertwine physical illness when you read them, and this is where it's going to get some of your heads going, uh, physical illness and sin. Some of you are not going to want to hear this, but James doesn't assume that the person is sick because of sin. However, he does indicate that it may be a cause. Isn't that interesting? Because he says, if he commits sins. So, Before the sick person calls the elders, one needs to search their heart and confess any known sins to the Lord. Good morning, saints. Good morning, sinners. Oh, there's a huge admission there. You see what he's saying? In other words, we should be prepared that the elders, when they come and pray for you, may ask, Are you aware of any unconfessed sins in your life? I've said that a few times. It's an interesting response you get back. That's none of your business. Why should I pray for you? Now, James directs the elders to pray over the person. And that actually has this implication of laying on of hands. Where we actually, you know, in a safe, friendly, social way, touch one another. Right? We lay hands on people. We anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. So even at our crosses, we have little vials of oil. It's just olive oil from Superstore. It's not a big deal. It's not magical. It's not mystical. It's not anything like that. It's scent free. You know, it's, it's, it's there. And there are several interpretations that are actually suggested. Some say that it refers to, that the oil actually refers to an ancient medicinal application of oil to wounds, what they used to do. When the Good Samaritan came and he found the guy that was beat up on the side of the road, he treated that traveler in the book of Luke with oil. He put oil in his wounds. It was a healing agent. Uh, some think that, you know, pray and use medical means. That's what the oil means. You, so you should pray with people, use medical means. Well, I have to agree that we should use all medical means available to us. I'm not convinced that James is saying this, just that. Others say that the oil is a physical expression of concern that was used to stimulate the sick person's faith. And it's possible, but I prefer the view that the oil is actually a symbol. It's a symbol of the Holy Spirit who is actually the divine agent in the healing. 
And at times, we've used oil when I've, when I've prayed with people. At times, I did not because I did not have oil on me. And, and so it's our feeling, though, that it's not necessarily required here at Seoul, but it's still my personal preference to use it, especially when we're praying over for people. It's a picture pointing us to trust in God's power. That's what we were singing this morning. And James says that it's the prayer of faith that heals. It's not the oil, but obviously it's, it's not prayer, but it's God to whom we pray who heals us. So we need to be careful not to assume that healing is a thing of the past because there are some, oh yeah, the healing doesn't happen anymore. But we also got to be careful not to presume that God has to heal simply because I asked him. That's another track that's running rampant in some church circles. And again, it's my conviction that God has never been obliged to heal, but that in his grace, for whatever reason, he sometimes actually grants physical healing. In my experience, over 30 years of ministry, I have seen the miraculous interventions of God. I have seen people get healed. I have seen other instances where God did not heal, but he did give great peace and a wonderful testimony to people who were relying on him. And so my understanding of this verse is if you're seriously sick, call the elders for prayer. We will come. We'll talk to you about your situation. We may ask, are you aware of any sins that you need to confess? It's not because we're going to be gossips and putting it on social media later on. We may ask you, you know, those questions. We will anoint you with oil as a symbol of the Holy Spirit who is mighty to heal. And we will pray with you believing that God can and that God does heal. But we have to submit to his sovereign will, which we seldom could know in advance. If God chooses to heal you, give him glory. Sing those songs because it wasn't the oil. It wasn't our prayers of faith that healed you. It was God. We're just being obedient. Then we have to deal with the question, what is the prayer of faith? And is James guaranteeing healing in every case in this passage? And some resolve this by saying that the gift of miraculous healing uh, was limited to the apostolic age. In other words, it doesn't apply anymore. God doesn't heal anymore. Um, obviously, obviously, God can, does heal miraculously in every age when it's his will to do so. Others go to the other extreme and say it's always God's will to heal. And if you aren't healed, you must not have prayed in faith. That's not only a false view, but it's also a cruel view. Because if it was true, no faithful believer, when you think about it, should ever get sick or die. But that doesn't square with either reality or the New Testament. Paul wasn't healed of his thorn in the flesh, and God did not heal Epaphroditus in Philippians or Trophimus in 2 Timothy. Paul even wrote and urged Timothy to drink a little bit of wine for his frequent stomach illnesses, and everybody said red. And um, <laughs> I'll drink to that. I don't know. That's out of scripture, you know. And not to claim. You'll notice he says drink wine and don't claim healing for your faith. And by the way, we all eventually get sick and die. Now, some argue that the prayer of faith is, is a special subjective assurance that is given to the elders that God will heal in this specific situation. My problem with that view is that it's very easy to be mistaken if you give somebody false hope that God will heal you and he doesn't heal you, you've actually then just added to the person's misery. So every prayer should be a prayer of faith. Every prayer should be a prayer of faith because we should not ask anything of God unless we actually believe that he's able to grant it. But, and here for me is the difficult thing about applying this. See, we don't know God's sovereign will. We don't know God's sovereign will in advance. Let me put it a little bit differently for you. If you're familiar with the scriptures, if you were one of John the Baptist's followers, you were one of his disciples, and he gets arrested and he's put into prison, you are praying for his release from prison, are you not? Of course you are. 
you would have not thought it to be God's will for drunken King Herod to lop off John's head. But he did. And of course, we look at the scriptures and we see that actually was part of God's will. Peter. If I was Peter, even Peter didn't think it was God's will for Jesus to be crucified. We see that, we read that, but thank God it was his will. You know, the prayer offered in faith suggests that not that God always heals, but rather there are times when he gives us the confidence to know and, and expect a yes to what we're praying. And what we miss is the key phrase here is that you're, you're supposed to call the elders. See, we make it all about us and we forget about the fact that it's, this is about relationship, that you're supposed to call the elders. That is, you need to take the initiative to reach out when you're hurting and that's the relational component. How many times have I talked to people, even in our own community, and they're telling me, you know, I got this diagnosed, bum, bum, bum. Have you gone to the crosses for prayer? Well, no, I haven't. Some of you can say, ouch. But this is what James is talking about. He lays out then a command in having relationships that heal is that we then are to confess our sins and faults to each other and afterwards pray that we may be healed. You know, we need a safe circle of friends in our lives, right? We need also to be safe for other people. And God alone forgives sin and God's forgiveness comes instantaneously when we confess our sins to him. That's beautiful. But healing in our relationship starts when we talk to people about our sins. Sharon and I were at a conference. We did a, a session on dealing with stress. And I talked about, and I'm talking to other pastors, and I'm talking about, you know, and pastors, there's, there's all these things that I laid out and I just named numerous amounts of things that we deal with and uh, talked about, you know, whether or not we are a safe place as pastors to talk to each other. Basically, James here, confessing to one another. And I was actually blown away at having the opportunity to go for a walk with two other guys individually. And then they just began to confess. Other pastors just began to confess. Safe, forgiving, prayerful. And it's something that we all have to learn to practice. And the idea behind this passage is since the prayer for healing offered in faith accomplishes so much, and since God is anxious to forgive sins of his people, the whole community should be encouraged to confess their sins to one another and pray for one another. And then doing so, health in the broadest sense of the community becomes ensured. Confession, uh, like prayer for healing, has also been taken to unwarranted extremes, especially within the church. Some never do it at all. Others may indiscreetly share things in public that should never be shared. Like maybe you find yourself in a life group and someone shares in front of the entire group that he lusts over the woman that's not his wife sitting on the couch across from him. James is not encouraging that kind of sharing. And generally, the confession should be as public as the sin. If it's a private sin, confess it private. Find somebody who's godly, somebody who's trustworthy, another saint who's going to keep your confidence and not make it a prayer request for the rest of the world. Be able to confess it to him or to her with men with men, women with women. And if your sin hurts specific individuals, confess it to those people. Maybe go so far as to ask their forgiveness. Can I talk about the Roman Catholic Church just for a second? Because <laughs> they actually seem to use this verse to justify the practice of confessing sins to the priest. Now, I'm not bashing them. But they seem to ignore the fact that this is something that's actually mutual to one another. So I doubt the priest would really appreciate, you know, you know, once you've done your confessing, you turn around and say, okay, it's your turn. And see what happens there. But quite obviously there's a substantial difference between one another and a priest. Or even the preacher. Because there have been times where people have come in to confess to me. I get it. I get it. And James is acknowledging that we're all struggling against sin. 
And we need one another in our spiritual battles. We need to help one another as we fight to establish and maintain a God-word, God-dependent focus. And James is not requiring every believer to publicly confess his sins into the entire church. I don't know about you. I remember seeing that in some of the churches that I've been where people, you know, screwed up majorly and they had to stand in front of everybody and, uh, you know, confess. You know, there may be specific instances where this is required. But for the most part, when we look at the text from Matthew 18, sin is best dealt with privately. Sin is best dealt with privately. And I believe that James is urging those who have sinned against a brother to privately confess their sin to one, and they specifically maybe the one that they have offended and seek their forgiveness and seek a reconciliation. And if I understand James correctly in this passage, he's not saying that confessions heal us, but the prayer does. Having that humble spirit. And then he concludes this passage with the final idea of how to have relationships with heal, is that we now have to work to restore the broken. And I love the last illustration here. It's the example of Elijah. Elijah's a great Old Testament guy. And he says, you know, the earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. Elijah was as human as we are. Think about that. And yet, when he prayed earnestly that no rain would fall, none fell for three and a half years. And he prayed again, and the sky sent down rain, and the earth began to yield its crops. So Elijah's street cred is legit. All you got to do is you got to look in the scriptures in the Old Testament that this guy walks in power. But you have to be reminded that he's as human as you and I are. We first run into Elijah in 1 Kings in the Old Testament in chapter 17. He stands in front of this evil king, King Ahab. And uh, he's a terrible guy. He's married to a terrible woman named Jezebel. You know, and I'll just say this. Men, don't marry a woman named Jezebel. And ladies, if you're here and your name Jezebel... Um, I apologize, you should be angry with your parents. Just throwing it out there, okay? Because when all is said and done, evil King Ahab is upset. This guy is not happy. It's already stopped raining for six months in Israel. Elijah now tells Ahab, look it, it's going to be three more years. And now Ahab wants him dead, and Jezebel wants him dead. So Elijah gets scared. Why? Because he's as human as you as I am. And he flees to this brook, or the Bible calls it a brook, but I would call it a creek in the Kareth Ravine. He, he goes to this little waterside place. And there at that creek, God begins to take care of him. Birds begin to bring him food. There's water in the brook. Every, everything is going good. And then one day it all dries up. And Elijah's probably wondering, you know, oh, has God forgotten me? Because, like, where's the food? Where's the water? Have I done something wrong, right? Because when stuff comes in, we're kind of looking at, is God punishing me? And he's almost like, oh, what did I do? What did I do? The book's dry. And then the Lord leads him to this place called Zarephath, and there he's going to meet a widow. And he approaches this widow that he sees, and he says, God has sent me here. Make me something to eat. Now, remember, they're in a famine. Her response was, you know, I just have a little bit of flour, a little bit of water, a little bit of oil, enough to make one cake so that my son and I are going to eat it, and then we die. So, you know, she's like a cheerful woman, an optimist. She knows what's going on, right? Elijah says, sure, okay, that's fine. Hey, look, the Lord sent me here. The Lord will provide. Yeah, this guy's not giving up. He's obviously hungry. And then he says, the Lord is good. And sure enough, day after day, day after day, the same amount of flour, the same amount of oil, the same amount of water was there for that widow. And there was a cake every day for the three of them to eat. And God was faithful. Then out of nowhere, now remember, Elijah's human like you and I. Out of nowhere, the son, the son gets sick and he dies. Now the widow begins to wonder, is it my sin? Like, surely Elijah, this, he's a man of God. You know, he's going to step into this space and, you know, What's, what's going on? And then, of course, Elijah does step in, and we see that Elijah takes the boy, and he brings him back to life. But he has his questions in the whole process. Elijah's not done. He goes back to Ahab, finds himself on Mount Carmel fighting the prophets of Baal. 
That's a, the great story where you see him call down fire out of heaven. It consumes not just the sacrifices, the rocks, and the dirt. He calls out the fire of heaven. And, and if that was you know, still an actual spiritual gift, it would be like, I would like it. Just letting you know that because I'd be, you'd be able to spot me anywhere in Winnipeg. Oh, look, Jerry must be downtown. Right? Or, or you know, in, get out of the left lane. So, you know, Elijah does this, right? And then after he mocks all these guys and gets defeated, he kills all the prophets of Baal. Jezebel hears what happens to her prophets. And she says, God, deal with me harshly if by this time tomorrow you're not like one of those. So now she puts a price on his head. Elijah, like you and me, right? What does our boy do? This guy has seen such powerful, profound things God can do, right? We, I just described them to you, but what does he do? He runs, he pouts. When you read the story, you see that he even accuses God. Elijah, you just called fire out of heaven. Can we have a talk? I don't think there, there should be any questions after that kind of encounter. You know, if God was feeding me food through birds where there was no food, if he was giving me something to drink when there was a drought, if miraculously there was meal after meal after meal when everything and everyone else around me was dying, you would think that fire out of heaven would kind of push you over the edge and you would go, I got it, God. I got it. I see it. But no, not Elijah. The guy is pouty. And he's, he's like, you and me, because scripture says, am I the only one who hasn't bowed my knee? He starts complaining. And then he says to God, will you just let me die? Can you just kill me? And I don't know if this is an adrenaline crash after the fire thing. I haven't quite really figured that out. But he asks God to kill him. And here's why I like the Elijah illustration in this passage with James. Because he has a nature just like you and me. Elijah, for the profound ways that God used him. He didn't wear a cape. He was just like you and me. And in the midst of unbelievable miracles, he questioned God. In the middle of unbelievable blessings, he still doubted. In the midst of what would really turn, you know, you know, we, we feel like we think, I, I think that if I had been there to see or experience, I wouldn't have those struggles. And yet, here he was there, he did experience, and he is struggling. And what James is telling us, is he's saying, no, 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 people, people, cling to the Lord. Go to God. Know God. It is the Lord, your righteousness. It is your, the Lord who accomplishes. And so James gets our focus and attention back on God. And for all of Elijah's goofiness, after this, he establishes Elisha, another guy, as his heir apparent. Brings on a mentor, walks through him, give, you know, just blesses into him. Second Kings, Elijah departs this earth. The next time we see Elijah in the scriptures is on the Mount of Transfiguration. He shows up with Jesus on the mountain. Listen, James is beautiful. It's, it's not really a long book, but it's where our heads and hearts need to be when it comes to communing with God on high. And James just reminds us to pray and praise. Pray and praise, confession, and repentance. Here's my prayer for you. As a pastor of your church, this is my prayer for you. Are you ready for it? Weariness. Oh, you're cruel. What are you thinking? It's not cruel. I wonder if it's actually not the most loving prayer someone can pray. See, if Peter was wary of himself, 
he wouldn't have made ridiculous claims specifically after Jesus saying, you know, no, 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 I'm not going to fall away. No, it's not going to happen. If Peter was wary of himself, then after that first rooster crowed, he would have repented. And all the damage that came from his other two, I don't know this man, I have no idea, There's none of that would have taken place if he was just weary. You being weary, tired enough to surrender, if we are like that, it actually pushes us into prayer and praise and, and more than your strength will ever know. What does confession do? What does repentance do when we look at it? I'm not just talking about confession before God. I'm saying drag this thing into light. I'm not just saying that when we're, we're done here, we go, you know, God, you know what I've been doing. You know where I've been. You know, please forgive me. Not in a nonchalant way. You know, yes, we take another step and we confess now to brothers and sisters who can hold us accountable. Friends. And we get out of this crazy cycle where we just try to justify ourselves. And we, you know, we always say, I'm going to be able to beat this. I'm going to be able to beat this. But 13 years later, you're still in the same cycle. And that's why God has given you community. That's why God has given us light to shine into darkness. Well, what are people going to think when I be, you know, what's true about you and therefore what's true about Christ? Well, that's what they'll think. You want rest in your life? If you want rest, some of us need to not have any more secrets. When you don't have secrets, you're not carrying the weight of feeling like at any moment you're going to get busted or found out that maybe you're a fake. For many of us, that's, that's going to be a wrestle. We wrestle with it all from time to time. But man, there's something beautiful about somebody walking up and going, guess what I found out? And you're kind of going, what? With, and without, you know, they share with you. There's a freedom there. And, and, and what I love about Scripture is that Christ invites us into that freedom. The t- last two verses of chapter 5 serve as the conclusion to this letter. And some people actually feel that this letter ends quite abruptly, and I would prefer that it, in many ways it actually captures the spirit of the entire letter. From chapter 1 to the end, James has spoken about our use of our tongue and what we say and do affects our relationships. The end goal in James isn't winning. It isn't outperforming. The end goal is healing. The end goal is restoration, and this is the ministry of the church. This is the ministry of every believer. This is our mission. And we're going to to fight to finish this mission well. I would like to suggest on our knees in prayer, becoming vulnerable, creating safe place. Why? For broken people to walk in to confess and to find Jesus. There's a lot of application here for all of us today. None of us would say my prayer life is all that it should be. I get that. So God is asking us all to work at prayer in all things. Not many of us could say that we're up to par in the praise category either, right? And It may sound contradictory, but it's not. Work at singing praises to God every day, people. Perhaps after hearing me talk about James, you need to call the elders for prayer about a debilitating illness that you're struggling with. But before you do, examine your heart. Ask God to search you to see if there's any wicked way within you. And some of you may need to find a godly brother or a godly sister to confess your sins to pray with. So why? That you may be healed. Do we believe that? And as God begins to put it on our heart, respond in obedience and you'll be blessed. So, relational rehab. Are you at peace with those in your relational circle? At home, in your family, in your school, in your workplace, in your neighborhood? Heart check. We're going to move into communion. Jordan McClellan will come. He'll lead us. And as he comes, let's prepare our hearts. If you need to talk a little further today about anything in my life lesson, just text the number on the screen and 
we'll get in contact with you right away because we're here to journey with you in your this journey of faith and life. Jordan. Is he here? There he is. I will say this. At the end of the gathering, when the band is playing and everybody's exiting, if you still want prayer, you want to be anointed with oil, I'll be standing at that cross to my left. I'll be waiting for you. You just got to ask. Okay? So as we've been doing in this series, um, talking about relationships and community especially, uh, today as we conclude, we're going to take communion. And when we go to the communion table, uh, we remember and we reflect upon all that Christ has done for us. But we recognize our need and our dependence on him in all things, in all areas of life, and really for our relationships. And so today, um, allow me to read the words that Jesus spoke to his disciples before going to the cross in Luke chapter 22. Uh, Just reading it out of a different translation today. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. And in remembrance of him, we eat the bread and we drink the cup. And so at Soul Sanctuary, we practice an open table. So if you are a believer in Christ this morning, we invite you to participate with us. Um, If this is perhaps new to you and perhaps unfamiliar, we just invite you just to sit back, relax, and really just take it in from your seat this morning. But as the band plays, I'm going to invite us to go to the communion tables. Now there's tables at the front and there's tables at the back. Depending where you are at in the front or back rows, I'll ask you to use the appropriate table. But I'm going to invite us to go to the table And I want us this morning, I'm not going to necessarily lead us as we eat the bread and drink the cup. What I want us to do is come back to our rows and take it with the people next to us. And for some of us, that could be as simple as just his body broken for you, his blood poured out for you. And for some of us, it's as simple as just an acknowledgement as we make eye contact with another believer, knowing that we're in this together as a community and as a family. And we eat and we drink Together, knowing that we are all under this blessing and that we all remember and reflect upon what God has done for us. Amen? And so today I'm going to ask us, just in our rows, um, as you get the cup, as you get the bread, make your way back to your rows and just partake with one another. And please invite one another into your groups as needed. Make sure no one is left out. But just a simple acknowledgement that we do this as community. At the heart of communion is, is a focus on community and the body of Christ, and that we are together, and that we need each other. Amen. And so I'm going to ask everyone to stand today. And uh, please, as the band plays, make your way to the communion tables, and let's let's partake of communion together as a community. Praise Him today, and we live in that freedom, church family. As we come to a close in our gathering today, I want to leave us with a blessing in the ancient times, the one who blessed it so by extending hands. And those who want to receive a blessing did likewise. And so allow me just to read this as a prayer over us today. And so for your goodness and generosity in giving us all we need, help us to praise you, O God. In every circumstance of life, in good times and bad, help us to trust you, O God. In love and faithfulness, with all that we have and all that we are, help us to serve you, O God. All we speak or write or listen to those nearby or far away, help us to share your love, O God. In our plans and work for ourselves and for others, help us to glorify you, O God. And in every thought and in word and deed, by the power of your Holy Spirit, this week, may we live for you, O God. Amen. So be it. Have a great week. God bless you. Join us for prayer this Wednesday, and uh, we'll see you soon.